This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us for another broadcast. I am very excited. I don't know if I'd use the word very. Maybe I would just amend that a little bit. I am excited about what happened for California churches at the behest of the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm not going to say very excited because I don't think the decision was fully just or fully constitutional, but we'll take what we can get and hopefully go back and get some more justice for churches in California. As you know, almost since the beginning of the pandemic, I would say within a month or two for sure, I started saying early, early on, we need to get the churches back open. When abortion clinics can be open and when Walmart can be open and when liquor stores can be open, then the state has no right to tell the church that it has to stay closed. And you could tell what was going on by which jurisdictions across the country were really coming down on the church. It just so happened that most of the time, if the churches were being closed and when police were showing up for drive-in services and things of that type, there was usually some leftist tyrant behind it. And it became patently obvious to any Christian who was paying attention that sides were being taken and favorites were being picked and the churches were not the favorites. So there's been a lot of litigation over the course of the last year, and there have been a lot of good victories. Well, this one is a good victory. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled now in favor of these two churches, Harvest Rock Church and Harvest International Ministry, or HIM, partially granting an injunction pending appeal in the federal lawsuit against Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and his total ban on indoor worship. So the upshot from CBS LA is that California cannot enforce this ban on indoor church services due to the pandemic. The justices in the ruling said the state can cap indoor services at 25% of a building's capacity. They also declined to stop California from enforcing a ban put in place last summer on indoor singing and chanting. So the upshot is that 25% capacity is now allowed rather than the fact that 90%, this is incredible. Liberty Council actually revealed this. Liberty Council has been working on this suit and other suits for a long time pertaining to freedom to worship under the First Amendment. But this is interesting because Gavin Newsom had created these tiers keeping 90 plus percent of the churches under a no worship ban. And yet he exempted hundreds of secular gatherings. Here was the no worship timeline for California, March 19th through May 25th, 2020, no worship. May 26th through July 12th, 25% capacity, but no more than 100 people. And then you had a particular tier where if there were a lot of COVID cases, you couldn't get together at all. And then July 13th to the present, no worship for over 90% of California. What in the world? What in the world? Isn't this pathetic that we have to go to the Supreme Court 
to get these tyrants to do the right thing. I mean, I praise the Lord for the Supreme Court in many ways. I don't like every decision they come down with. But, you know, come on. This this is just common sense. I want to play a little bit from CBS LA on this case. This has got one. Governor Newsom's office has now issued revised guidelines, still setting limits, though, on how many people can attend those services. The state had prohibited indoor celebrations in purple-tiered counties or those areas with the highest risk of COVID transmission. But the Supreme Court ruled the ban violated First Amendment guarantees, something attorneys for Pasadena-based Harvest Rock Church have, quite frankly, argued all along. The Supreme Court has said in California, there is no world in which the Constitution permits a governor with the mere flick of a pen to close churches while he keeps a vast majority of other non-religious gatherings open. And that really has been the argument, Amy, that we have heard all year as we've been covering this story quite a lot here on Sundays here on this show, is that people are saying who gets to decide what is essential and what is not essential. And the Supreme Court has said that they cannot, in fact, tell churches that they can't open. They did say, though, they can set certain guidelines that are recommended by the health departments to make sure that it's safe in doing so. And that includes limiting the number of people indoors and possibly restricting singing all together. All right, let me just point out this particular fact. 25% ban on indoor worship. I still don't think that's fair, but it's better than banning 90% of all churches from getting together and worshiping. But at the same time, they didn't stop the singing ban. What? I mean, you had certain evangelical leaders out there doing backflips over this, which is why I edited myself on the fly when I said I was very excited. I think it's it's small progress, good progress, but a lot more progress needs to be made on this particular issue because how in the world is a singing ban going to do anything to stop COVID-19? That's crazy. You need to, then you need to stop people from talking. People who talk spread saliva and potentially spread the coronavirus. Of course, now with all of these draconian face mask orders that have come down from the Biden administration, who knows if we'll ever be able to breathe or sing again freely. I'm getting really sick of this. I don't know about you. But over at Liberty Council, they point out that justices Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito would have granted this injunction against the tier one of the California bans. But while the court wrote several times that the churches may present additional evidence of the discriminatory treatment on the singing and chanting ban, Justice Gorsuch noted that California exempts music and TV production for the entertainment industry where singing is permitted. Right. So what's wrong with the Supreme Court? How in the world is that constitutional? You can't sing. What happened to the whole issue of science, science and more science? They're supposed to be all about science on the left, all about science. Of course, when we see all of these major studies being done on masks, generally not even working, they don't care about the science. And now we see evidence that the COVID cases are dropping precipitously in various locations across the country. And then they up the face mask orders at a time when all the COVID cases are dropping and the deaths are dropping and the hospitalizations are dropping. Oh, it's because we're masking. No, it's not. No, it's not. And we've covered this for a long, long time. The places where the mask mandates have been most draconian have been the places where the COVID-19 rates went through the roof, like Hawaii, like California. And what's going on in Florida? You know, COVID is spreading and then COVID is dropping and people are in the hospital and people die and then people get better and most people get better.
And yet we're still living in this dystopian nightmare. Here's a story via Forbes, which is worth uh, thinking about a little bit. It looks like airlines are finally getting much more serious about enforcing their own COVID-19 rules. Several airlines will soon be rolling out new surveillance technology. And this is going back to June, but I'm just reminding you of this, that identifies people who are not complying with face mask requirements, according to tech companies that provide this AI-powered video detection solution. Super duper. And so now that we have this more draconian face mask order, we can look forward to maybe facial recognition software taking care of those scoff laws who are sitting in the waiting areas of airline terminals and go after them because that will really help the airline business recover from everything that they've suffered through the last year. Yeah, that's that's what you want. You want to drive the airline industry just directly into the ground, metaphorically speaking. Why not? I mean, John Kerry flies a private jet. What does he need the airlines for? You know, these elites, you think Jeff Bezos sits in coach on a United Airlines plane and he flies Spirit Airlines when he gets the chance? No way. Bill Gates, you think he flies commercial airlines? Do you think any of these guys fly commercial airlines? What do they care if the airlines go out of business? That would be good for the earth. That would be good for the climate. That would be good. Really, really good. Take care of that carbon footprint. Look at the whole big picture that's going on here. Look at the big picture. Look at all the people who have lost their businesses. Look at all the people who have lost their jobs. They're handing out checks like Halloween candy for crying out loud. But somebody was asking this on Twitter actually over the weekend, and I thought this was brilliant. If the government can just create money out of thin air, why do we have to pay taxes? And I thought for a minute, wow, that's actually quite interesting that somebody would bring up that point. I mean, we have trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to just send checks to whoever Biden feels like sending checks to. Now he's got more ideas for who to send checks to coming up in the future. But you got to raise the taxes on people. There's not enough money in the world to actually fund what these people are spending. And at some point, we're going to have to pay the piper. When we come back, a really bombshell story from Time magazine revealing what the left did to influence the election. We'll come back. Stay with us. This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw away my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not in insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. By the way, if you think I'm going to cover this ridiculous impeachment trial blow by blow, I'm not. You know why? Because I don't care. Who knows why people listen to the left? Who knows why people trust leftist politicians at all? But they still do. I like to call these people low-information voters. And if you love the left, and if you want to follow the left, and if you want to believe the left, you're entitled to believe all the lies you want to believe. It's your right as an American. But I don't intend to go along with it because I think it's ridiculous. It's not going to work. It's not going to do anything to President Trump, who is now a private citizen. It's just vindictive, and it's demonstrative of a vendetta that the left has, that they just want to rub out all opposition. Trump is but the marker on the rest of us. Those of us who really want to keep America as it has been handed down to us are the enemy to these people. And so let's put the country through a second ridiculous impeachment trial that has no chance of actually removing him from office that he no longer occupies. This is so dumb. Can you imagine what CNN would be doing if Republicans were trying to do a similar move on a Democrat president? Oh, Clinton's left office. Let's impeach him. Yeah, CNN would just take that really at face value and say, oh, it's all about democracy. Sure, they would. Sure, they would. Senator Rand Paul actually weighed in on this ridiculous trial that will be taking place this week. And remember, when the House impeached him, there were no witnesses. There was no evidence. They didn't go through some kind of due process system at all. It was just Trump is evil. Let's have a trial. Uh, Talk about undermining the republic. This is what undermines the republic. This is what Senator Paul had to say. Cut to. Well, basically, the impeachment's dead on arrival. We know it's going to fail. We know it's going to be basically partisan, bitter, rancor, an extension of the election. It's nothing remotely close to unity. The calls for unity are a farce if they have to go through with this impeachment. I think it does drive a wedge in society and people will say, Oh my goodness, how could this possibly be fair or constitutional? So it only takes 30 it only takes 34 votes to acquit. We had 45 to say that even the whole trial is illegitimate and unconstitutional because he's no longer the president. So we know what the result will be of this. Yes, exactly. We know it precisely what the result will be. So why are we putting the country through this? They were all worried about putting the country through things back when Clinton was impeached, but not so much with Trump. The important takeaway here, however, is the deception that the left has perpetrated on America. And I appreciate Senator Paul's comments here on Fox. This is Cut 3. One important thing we do need to see, though, is there has been a big lie promulgated out there that he incited violence. Look, I disagreed with the debate. I voted against what President Trump was asking for. But 
when I listen to the speech and I hear him say, go fight to let your voices be heard, does, and has, has no one in the country on the Democrat side heard, heard a figurative speech? Have none of them listened to their own speech and how often a politician says, go fight, win, fight for your country? But I think they should soak video of all the Democrats and the inflammatory and temperate language that they've used. Cory Booker saying, get up in the face of these Congress people. Maxine Waters saying, swarm them in restaurants. Kamala Harris even saying, let's bail out these people. One guy's been bailed out three times by the group that Kamala Harris supports. He's committed violence every time he's gotten out. He cracked someone's skull the last time. I was at the ball field when Bernie Sanders' supporter committed violence. But the thing is, is we as Republicans were more fair-minded. We haven't blamed any of those politicians either for their words or for the actions of any crazy supporters of theirs. So when Bernie Sanders supporters shot up the ball field and almost killed Steve Scalise, nobody said it was Bernie Sanders' fault. But they need to look at themselves and hear what they've been saying and see the violence associated with their words. Every day on the Internet, I am attacked and people say that they wish I had violence committed against me again. I had six ribs broken part of my lung removed, coughed up blood for a year, almost died from an infection. And the thing is, is on the internet, Nancy Pelosi's daughter has said, Rand Paul deserves it and he ought to get it again. The teacher of the year in Virginia, a big Democrat said the same thing. Half a dozen minor D-list celebrities and actors have wished me harm. And nobody says a word about it on the left. Yep, exactly right. And if you know who these people really are, you won't take them seriously. Now, something else that is quite interesting. Time Magazine put out an article called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. And the minute a lot of conservatives saw this, they said, oh boy, you better get this and put it on some kind of safe PDF on your computer because they're going to take this down when people start reading this. But basically, as they say over at BizPack Review, Time admits well-funded cabal of influencers worked behind the scenes to quote unquote save the 2020 election. Who was it? Left-wing activists and business titans. They saved your election. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad because your election was in turmoil and trouble? You might have actually believed that Biden shouldn't have been president, in which case you hate democracy. It's an absolutely stunning piece. It's a long piece. I'm not going to try to read through it for you. But the article speaks of a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, referring to what it described as a shadow campaign formed to oppose Trump's assault on democracy, a cabal of powerful people working together behind the scenes to control the flow of information. Does that sound like undergirding democracy or meddling in the election process? It's crazy. It's crazy. They say a second thing happened amid Trump's attempts to reverse the results of the election. Corporate America turned on him. Hundreds of major business leaders, many of whom had backed Trump's candidacy and supported his policies, called on him to concede. And he said on December 2nd, it was all very strange. Within days after the election, we witnessed an orchestrated effort to anoint the winner, even while many key states were still being counted. Remember when the president said that? Time magazine now says in a way Trump was right. There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests and coordinated the resistance from CEOs. Both surprises were the 
the result of an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. The pact was formalized in a terse, little-noticed joint statement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and AFL-CIO published on Election Day. Both sides would come to see it as a sort of implicit bargain inspired by the summer's massive, sometimes destructive racial justice protests in which the forces of labor came together with the forces of capital to keep the peace and oppose Trump's assault on democracy. Yeah, Trump's assault on democracy. Right. So you have a long, long story about this, but there is an evangelical connection. I'm going to tell you about this in just a second. They referenced that sometime in the fall of 2019, a man by the name of Mike Podhortzer became convinced the election was headed for disaster and determined to protect it. Hmm. This was not his usual purview. For nearly a quarter century, Podhortzer, senior advisor to the president of the AFL-CIO, hardly a conservative Group, the nation's largest union federation, has marshaled the latest tactics and data to help its favorite candidates win elections. He was also involved, by the way, in the founding of Catalyst, the flagship progressive data company. So he's the guy that kind of got everything going and then it, it gets into all the details. Then it gets to this section of the article called Strange Bedfellows. About a week before Election Day, Podhortzer received an unexpected message. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce wanted to talk. So the AFL-CIO and the Chamber, which have a long history of antagonism, got together. Behind the scenes, the business community was engaged in its own anxious discussions about how the election and its aftermath might unfold. The summer's racial justice protests had sent a signal to business owners, too. The potential for economy disrupting civil disorder. Well, that's a nice way to say it. Uh, I I would actually phrase it as if Biden doesn't win, we're going to burn all your cities down. And those were the threats of leftist activists and anarchists. I like how they kind of couch it a little bit, though. Neil Bradley, the chamber's executive vice president and chief policy officer, said with tensions running high, there was a lot of concern about unrest around the election or a breakdown in our normal way we handle contentious elections. These worries had led the chamber to release a pre-election statement with the Business Roundtable, a Washington-based CEO's group, as well as associations of manufacturers, wholesalers and retailers calling for patience and confidence as votes were counted. But Bradley wanted to send a broader, more bipartisan message. So he reached out to Podhortzer through an intermediary both men declined to name. Hmm. Agreeing that their unlikely alliance would be powerful, they began to discuss a joint statement pledging their organization's shared commitment to a fair and peaceful election. They chose their words carefully and scheduled the statement's release for maximum impact as it was being finalized. Christian leaders signaled their interest in joining, further broadening its reach. Huh! Christian leaders? What Christian leaders? The statement was released on Election Day under the names of Chamber CEO Thomas Donahue, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, and the heads of the National Association of Evangelicals and the National African American Clergy Network. How interesting. Isn't that interesting? It stated it is imperative that election officials be given the space and time to count every vote in accordance with the applicable laws. We call on the media, the candidates and the American people to exercise patience with the process and trust in our system, even if it requires more time than usual. How interesting. I'm looking at this statement. It was released on Election Day. AFL-CIO, Chamber of Commerce, National Faith Leaders. Call for votes to be counted. Oh, the National Association of Evangelicals. How interesting. I wonder if the usual cabal of big evil was involved in this. Wouldn't that be interesting to know? 
Who is the person who is the go-between linking arms with these progressives to announce as Americans head to the polls, they call for all votes to be counted in accordance with applicable laws? Why do you need to say that? Because they had an agenda. They were trying to make sure that the election turned out the way they wanted it to turn out. Now, Time Magazine does not say that they fixed the election or rigged the election. I mean, certainly, who would ever believe such a ridiculous conspiracy theory that this election was stolen? I mean, come on. Nobody in their right mind would look at what happened in Georgia or Pennsylvania or any of these other states and conclude that it was anything but the most above board, top notch ethical operation. Time Magazine just told you more than you knew. More than you knew and admitted more than we ever thought that they would. You think that going to the polls ensures that you're going to see a fair result? As they say, it doesn't matter who does the voting. It matters who does the counting. And maybe in this case, it matters who was pulling all the strings behind the scenes during the entire process, including the National Association of Evangelicals. Isn't that amazing? Stay with us. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. What is our new life in Jesus Christ supposed to look like? Well, Ephesians 4 outlines it in part when it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, unfortunately, that first sin named bitterness is an all too common problem in many of our lives. Somebody hurt us, then they got away with it, or somebody really wronged us and never apologized. Apologized. These are just some of the circumstances that can create bitterness. And before you know it, you're enslaved to it. But if that's you, you can take heart because my next guest says it's not just biblical, but also entirely possible to find freedom from bitterness and to live a life of forgiveness and joy. So joining me now is Stephen Virus. He has served as a pastor and biblical counselor at Faith Church and Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries in Lafayette, Indiana. Today, we'll be talking about his book called Overcoming Bitterness. Stephen, great to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you, Janet. I really appreciate you giving me the time. Well, I'm excited to talk about this because I think there are more of us who probably struggle with this than we'd like to admit. But how do you see this issue of bitterness as being a problem? I know you do a lot of counseling and you've seen a lot of people who have had this kind of issue in their lives. How widespread do you think it really is? Oh, I think, Janet, we all face bitterness in one way or another. And for me as a pastor, it's not just a matter of seeing it in counselees or in church members. I struggle with it as well. Uh, we're living in a sin-cursed world. We're um, in um, among fallen people. And uh, we just bump into one another. And if we're not careful, we will not process that 
episodes of suffering well, and it will result in bitter lives. Yeah, you're right about that. How would you best define it? I know we all kind of know what bitterness is. We know it when we see it. But how would you actually define bitterness when you're dealing with somebody who's wrestling with it? Well, you know, it's interesting, the words that are in the Bible, uh, the Old Testament Hebrew, Mara, the New Testament Greek, Picria, it literally means the poisonous, putrid bile from the gallbladder. Mm. Now, that's not the way we would normally talk about it, but that is the, the biblical terminology that undergirds the conversation. The way I define it in the book is feeling angry, hurt, resentful because of one's bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment. But, you know, ultimately, we know what bitterness tastes like, and we certainly know what bitterness feels like, and um, it can certainly um, ruin relationships. It, as the book of Hebrews says, can cause all sorts of trouble and defile many. Well, you're right about that. And and what the real problem is with bitterness is we, we think of what the Bible says about having a root of bitterness, that once it gets down in you, it's very difficult to get it out. What is it about this sin that you think makes it take root in the way that it does? Why does it last so long and, and just perpetuate itself for years sometimes in people's lives? Well, you know, the verse that you quoted in Ephesians four thirty one and 32, that's focusing on the behavioral manifestations. That's talking about full-on bitterness. When my, my, I'm speaking bitter words or I'm behaving in bitter ways, However, Scripture has two other categories when it defines bitterness. It starts by talking about bitter circumstances. So bitterness isn't first and foremost something I do. It's first and foremost something that I experience. And so, for example, you have the great story of Joseph at the end of his father's life when he gathers all the sons around. um, What Jacob says about Joseph is, the archers shot bitter arrows at you. Mm. Yes. Well, who was he talking about? He's talking about his own brothers who are yes. in that very circle. You talk about an awkward moment. Or you think about sweet Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel, whose rival actually provoked her because of her infertility. And she wept bitterly as a result of that. Or the children of Israel, who in slavery were treated by the Egyptians in a way that purposely made their work uh, more bitter. And so my point is... This is such a deep-rooted thing because it's not just something that I do behaviorally. We face bitter circumstances each and every day. And the, the segue is how I process that, which is why the book of Proverbs says, the heart knows its own bitterness. Wow. And so long before these become bitter words, long before they become bitter actions, it's a matter of how I'm processing those um, episodes of suffering in my life, those bitter circumstances. So you asked at the beginning, how widespread is it? Well, every person faces bitter circumstances. The question is, do I process it in a way that draws me closer to the Lord and more in, um, in likeness with his son? Or do I process it in a way that is starting to create a bitter heart that over time is going to result in bitter actions? Well, there's so much in what you just said. Now, when you're talking about a bitter heart, how do you know when somebody has gotten to that point where they have so ill dealt with the bitter circumstances they may have encountered that now it has taken root? Now the heart itself of the perhaps the victim, you might want to say, of the bitter circumstances has turned bitter itself. Well, often it's what am I thinking about when I don't have to be thinking about anything else? Hmm. 
So am I replaying those hurts over and over and over? Am I magnifying the way the person mistreated me? Am I plotting revenge? Am I licking my wounds? And Janet even gets worse because the poster boy for bitterness in the Bible is Esau. And what's interesting about his story is um, it started not with somebody else mistreating him. It started with a choice of unbelief he made. That's why the book of Hebrews calls him a profane man. Because You remember the story. Sure. He's the one who sold his own birthright. But he allowed that story to continue to replay in his mind. And pretty soon, Jacob was the one who stole it. Um, and that's not what happened in that particular situation. And that's part of the insidious nature of this sin. If I allow it to continue to percolate in my heart, all of a sudden, everybody else in my life looks worse, and I make myself look better. And that's going to twist the way that I think about God. It's going to twist the way I think about others. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Esau was a profane man. Ultimately, it was a matter of unbelief. He didn't trust in God's goodness. He took his own path and as a result, he became a bitter man. Right, and and that passage that you're referencing in Hebrews chapter 12 also calls Esau unholy. And it's kind of ironic because if you were to read the account of Jacob and Esau, you might conclude just by one quick read, poor Esau was the one who was really victimized here. And, and like you've said, Hebrews 12 has a completely different take on that. It really does, and there's no question that um, what Jacob did to him was wrong. So I'm not suggesting that Esau had an easy existence. That's not the case. But it's very important for all of us to understand that fundamentally, we're not passive victims. We're active worshipers. Right. And the way we respond to the trials of life are either going to reflect our belief in God And that's what's the fundamental issue here, unbelief. It's going to reflect our belief in God and our trust in Him even when we're hurting, or it's going to move us away from God and His promises, and that is a... Um, a recipe for bitterness. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting because I'm sure there's not much to be done sometimes about people who are inclined to go in that direction when we have a culture that very much almost, you know, celebrates bitterness. If you just look on social media, people love to say I'm the victim and sometimes they genuinely are. But when it is the case that in the culture by, you know, adopting this victimhood mentality gets you a lot of attention, that can be a bad thing uh, for people who might be more willing to forgive or might put their trust in the Lord in a stronger way if they couldn't get attention for it just by going on the Internet. And I I would imagine that sometimes exacerbates the problem. Well, and that's why I encourage the folks in our church and anybody that comes to see us for counseling, um, less time on social media, more time in your Bible. Amen. (laughs) And in this particular case, um, this is where the book of Psalms can help us so much. Because at least a third of our psalms are lament psalms. So there are examples of people who are honest, because we're not saying here that, well, to avoid bitterness, you just paste a plastic smile over a broken heart. But the Bible has a rich sufferology. It helps us understand how can we be honest about the hurt and the pain around us, but in a way that moves us toward God instead of away from Him. Perfect. You know what, Stephen? Hang on. We're going to go to a break. We'll come back with Stephen Byers, his book, Overcoming Bitterness. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. 
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Is there a way to move from life's greatest hurts to a life filled with joy? That's what we're tackling right now with Stephen Byers. His book is called Overcoming Bitterness. And what a practical subject, Stephen, you're addressing here. You were talking a little bit about the issue of lament. And I know you address this in the book, The Power of Bitter Lament. And this involves speaking directly to the Lord about your bitter circumstances, which sometimes is the last thing we do, which is so weird because it's Christians, that should be the first place we go is to the Lord when we're having some kind of terrible situation in our lives that is making us bitter. How do you advise people to go to the Lord with their circumstances and work through them and and allow him to work in their lives to deal with the sometimes bitter emotions from these bad circumstances? Well, part of it is developing a biblical theology of suffering. And that's the beauty of God's Word. It doesn't simply talk about actions or behavior. So, you know, the lesson here is not, well, stop being bitter. No, God's Word allows us to take an honest look at what's going on inside and actually redirecting what's going on in our thoughts, in our hearts. And um, that's why these Psalms of Lament can be so powerful, because they provide models for us. God does not ask us to ignore our pain. God asks asks us to bring our pain, our suffering, right to his very throne of grace. And, And many times when you read the Psalms of Lament, or other places in the Bible where lament is emphasized, it sounds very close to complaining. Mm. And, and, and I don't believe that it's necessarily disrespectful to the Lord to 
to come directly to him. In fact, in my own Bible reading right now, I've been working through the book of Job. It's a fascinating um, discussion, and yet the book makes it very clear that in all that Job said, he did not sin. Yes. And so we can be honest to the Lord. In fact, I don't think it's a matter of a lack of trust that would cause us to do it. I think it's the polar opposite. I think it's an evidence of our trust in God when we come respectfully to Him with our questions, our concerns, and our complaints. And then we um, turn to His Word, seeking to believe what He has said, even when we can't yet see it. That's part of what will prevent bitterness in the heart, is a quiet, authentic trust of the Lord in the midst of our hurts. That's really good. So give us a practical example, if you would, Stephen. How does this work itself out in somebody's real life experience? What would be an example of someone doing what you've just said? Well, you know, we actually have a a great practical example in the way God taught his people to remember the Passover, because you remember that meal always starts with bitter herbs. Yes which is a fascinating way for God to want his people to remember something because that was Egyptian food. That was, indi- that was a kind of lettuce that was indigenous to Egypt. So even after the people of God were delivered from their slavery, every year God wanted them to have a meal that began with a reminder of the bitterness of what they experienced. And you can just imagine that in their mouths, the <laughs> Egyptian food. Yeah. However, that's not where it stopped. Next, you have unleavened bread. And anybody I've ever talked to loves the taste of freshly baked bread. And yet in that case, it's baked the way it is as a reminder of how God brought their salvation quickly. And so now you have that juxtaposition of tastes in the worshiper's mouth where you have the bitter herbs, but now blending with the unleavened bread. And all of that is preparing you for the sweetness of the Passover lamb, Mm -hmm. pointing directly to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that is the model for the way people like you and me respond to bitter circumstances. Again, we're, we're honest about it. And sometimes that means going to a person and talking with them about a way that they sinned against us in order to bring about reconciliation. So that stops the bitterness process in its tracks. At other times, it's us being honest, like Esau, when it started with something that I did wrong. Hmm. Well, how about me asking God's forgiveness or asking forgiveness of the appropriate people? Again, that stops bitterness in its tracks. But, but what's so hard about doing either one of those, confronting someone who sinned against us or being honest about the way that I sinned against somebody else is it's just so difficult. Well, that's where the gospel fits into this. That's where the Passover lamb fits into this. Jesus Christ died for those sins. Either the ones committed against me or the ones that I have committed. That's what makes it far more attainable to deal with sin in a biblical way so that I don't 
start developing bitterness in my heart, which will invariably lead to a bitter lifestyle. Well, that is so good. What a great example. And you're absolutely right about that. The, the, one person who comes to mind when we're talking about this subject is Corey Ten Boom. And people will remember Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place, very famous book. But Corey Ten Boom had been in a concentration camp, for those who aren't aware, and her father and her sister died in the concentration camp and she was released. And later on, this SS guard came up to her and said, forgive me. He had become a believer. And I remember her telling the story that when she forgave him, all that bitterness and that anger was removed. And it was such a simple thing. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for her to encounter one of her guards in the concentration camp. But what a glorious example of a Christian just practically saying, well, look how much I've been forgiven for. How can I not extend forgiveness to the person who wronged me? What what part does forgiveness play in all of this when, when you are trying to deal with a root of bitterness? Well, I think many times the um, what starts the bitterness process is um, an, a refusal to forgive. And um, either it's because someone hurt me and I don't want to follow the biblical steps outlined in places like Luke 17, 3 and 4, where I have a responsibility to talk with that person. And if they acknowledge their sin and request my forgiveness, I'm required to forgive them, and I'm required to forgive them over and over and over and over. I don't like to do that. I would rather nurse my hurt. I would rather um, elevate myself and my own heart by thinking the worst about that other individual. And that's why the, the beauty of the gospel here can help transform us. We don't have to live in bondage to that approach to life. We don't have to live um, like those in the world who choose to function that way. Praise God, he's made it possible for us to be entirely different. Yeah, that's right. So when somebody encounters bitter circumstances and is thinking about what you're just saying here, how important it is to not let that root get into your heart and, and have all the bad you know, uh, implications that come forth from having that bitterness linger with you. How do you nip bitterness in the bud right in the beginning? You have bitter circumstances, you begin to turn bitter. What do you do in that moment? Well, I really believe there's some value in having people in your life that you can just ask on a regular basis, do I sound like a bitter person? Mm. Am I behaving in a bitter way? I mean, you know, ideally, we could handle that ourselves, and we would have the level of um, spiritual and emotional authenticity that as soon as bitterness starts, as you said, we can nip it in the bud. Well, um I know for me, um, I struggle enough that I need some people in my life who will be very honest with me. When I start sounding bitter, when I start acting bitter, they can help me before it gets worse. But I have to be willing to listen to them. I have to want um, people in my life who will be honest to me, with me and hold me accountable Because, you know, as we've mentioned, Hebrews 12, this is a terrible path. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, Mm -hmm. that no one allows a root of bitterness to spring up, causing trouble and defiling many. Those are powerful statements, and it's very, very wise to um, choose to stop this process early on. And that's one of the reasons Christ died. 
to make it possible for us to have the power to do that. Yeah, and what a reminder, too, when you consider all that Christ suffered for us. And he, on a human level, I'm sure, could have felt bitter or had bitterness if he were like us. Of course, he wasn't like us. But you think about that. If, if Christ could forgive we can forgive if Christ didn't exhibit bitterness. That's a challenge to us as his disciples to make sure that we are obeying him in all things and forgiving and dealing with those kinds of roots, which that's such an important thing and such an encouragement, too, that you really can live a life as a Christian filled with joy. You don't have to live in bitterness. Stephen Vyer's book is called Overcoming Bitterness and such good advice, wisdom here, Stephen, and I really appreciate your being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for the privilege, Janet. My honor to have you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time.